You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Welcome to the show. On today's podcast, we're going to talk with Craig, who writes over at retirebeforedad.com, and we're going to do a deep dive or an introduction into the world of dividend investing. Craig has kind of balanced the line. He's an indexer who also has done a significant amount of dividend investing and is leveraging that plan to meet his stated goal of retiring before dad. His dad retired at the age of 56, and Craig is on pace to beat him. What an amazing challenge. And I think this is going to be a fun conversation. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing great. And yeah, it's what an interesting blog name, right? Retire before dad. I've always wondered, actually, I've known Craig for a couple of years now. We met at, I think, three or four FinCons ago. That's been his guiding light since 2002. And what a cool idea. And it's interesting because we actually envision this episode as almost exclusively a dividend investing show, because that's something that we really haven't touched on in the first couple hundred episodes here at Choose of I. But as we got more into Craig's story, we realized, man, his story is fascinating. So with that, Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> That's awesome. I keep hoping people will say that you've been the first one to do it. <laughs> you just made my day. <laughs> so, Craig, I'm excited that we're having this conversation with you today. We're going to be talking about dividend investing, but really, I want to go back and talk a little bit more about your origin story. And I was reading your blog. I know you work in IT now, but it looked like you started out wanting to be a stockbroker. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, my, my freshman year in college, I switched to becoming a finance major. I liked money. I liked investing, or at least I thought I liked investing. So I thought, you know, why not give finance a chance? And I didn't really know about Wall Street or how banks worked, but I, I knew about stocks. So my junior year, I was looking for an internship and put my resume out to a bunch of companies. The only one that called me back was, was Merrill Lynch. I took an unpaid internship because that was all I could get. I also worked in a record store that summer to, to pay the bills. And I was uh, an assistant to a fairly young financial advisor who was really getting his business started. And a lot of the tasks that I was given were, were marketing. You know, here's a customer list. You know, how can we send out direct mailers to these people? The whole internship was really about how do we get more customers? How do I build my business? And it had really nothing to do with the stock market. And I remember by August, my internship was over and, and my advisor that I was working with, he asked me, what else do you want to get out of this internship? And I just simply said, you know, I want to see you buy a stock. How do you how do you buy a stock on your computer? You haven't done your stockbroker, but you haven't bought any stock this whole time I've, I've been here for the summer. So the next time he got on the system to buy a stock, he showed me. It was very unexciting. We have to remember at the time, this was, I guess, 1997, there were no online brokers. So I had never seen a transaction like that. I had no idea what it looked like. But ultimately, that internship made me realize that I... I did not want to be a stockbroker. Uh, there were certainly opportunities to become a stockbroker after college. It's it's really more of a sales position, but I knew right away that 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 wasn't the right path for me. So, Craig, talk me through this, like the nuts and bolts of what this guy is actually doing, because you didn't see him buy a stock the entire time you were there. But allegedly, he's an advisor, or a stockbroker, or whatever you want to call him. What did he do all day? Well, I I did make my first cold call. When I was working for him, he actually gave me the opportunity to call his, he had a list. You, you would buy, you can buy lists of people's names and phone numbers and with demographic information and go down one, one by one and make cold calls. This was a pretty standard practice back then. I'm sure people still do it. And you know, the idea was if you make a hundred phone calls a day, you might get, you know, three or four warm people. And ultimately one of those might become a customer. So that, that was a big part of what he did. He had customers, he had clients, and he would work on their more on their financial plan, like their overall plan, and uh, you know put together uh, a booklet of of all their information. So he did help his clients, but 
there wasn't a whole lot of the stock stuff going on. And that, that was disappointing to me. And I asked him, I was like, you know, how do you guys make money? You know, how does this even work? Because I, I didn't understand. I still don't understand it half the time how, how these guys make money. And I asked him, I said, you know, how do you make money? And he told me, he's like, he said, the, the client never sees it. He just said, you know, the way we, we have it set up is that we put fees here and there and we just keep them hidden. If they ask about it, we, we disclose it. And it's maybe disclosed in the fine print, but it wasn't really explained to the customer how they take out their fees. And I assume they probably got some you know, kickbacks from mutual fund companies they used, but I, I never really understood it. And his answer to that question for me was a deal breaker. I just thought, wow, I, these people don't even know where the fees come. I don't understand where the fees coming out. You know, I don't want to be in that business. I think we've seen over the years that a lot of people have decided to go the DIY way without an advisor, or if they do go with an advisor, they choose a, a fee-only financial advisor rather than somebody you know, who makes money off of you know, mutual fund fees or, or kickbacks. So you have two kind of jobs side by side. You have this unpaid internship with a finance company, and then you're working in a record shop. So which one was the better learning experience? Oh, the record shop by far. What was really cool about it was a used record store. People would come in, again, this is 1997. So this is back actually before Napster hit. You know, when Napster hit, things went digital, but this was still, uh, people were still buying CDs at the time. Customers would come in with a box of CDs and they'd sell them to us. As the person who was working there, I would both buy the CDs from the people who came in and then put them on the shelves and then sell them later on. So it was, it was cool to see how to you know, get an inventory, how to acquire inventory, pay out the money that it costs to, to build that inventory, and then bump up the price and sell it out for profit. And so I learned a lot more working in that record store. But the one very important thing I did learn interning as a stockbroker is that I didn't want that to be my career. So what I love about your story is that you went for it, man. I mean, you did, I, I think you took a global travel trip for over a year, like 14 some odd months. What inspired that? In high school, I, I had a Latin class. We went to Italy for 10 days or something. I had a great experience in Italy and just you know, thought, wow, like, I love doing this. When can I do it again? So I always knew after graduating college that I would take the you know, a trip to Europe and get a, get a URL pass and, and, and do that before going into the quote unquote real world. So my trip to Europe was extraordinary. Just had a great time, met tons of fun people. I was with two close friends. We, I think we traveled to 15 countries in 60 days. I just loved it. So when I started my career, I knew that at some point I wanted to leave and, and go travel. So as I was, you know, I had a little bit of debt when I started my career. I, you know, I had a car. I wasn't really making a lot of money at first, but eventually, you know, my salary started. Uh, you know, I started to have extra money left over and started saving up for this trip that I, I really wanted to take. And I was reading a lot of travel books. There was a book called The Beach by Alex Garland about you know in the movie Leonardo DiCaprio goes to goes to Thailand and it's just this beautiful place. And you know, through that and some other books, uh, another one called Danziger's Travels by Nick Danziger's really cool travel story. Through those books, I realized that Europe was not the only place to go. Americans think, oh, I'm going to go to Europe. It's, it's really cool after college. But there were these, these other continents to explore. So I saved up my money. I paid off debt. And at some point, I think in, it was February 2011, I bought a ticket to Beijing and I bought a return ticket from Singapore. I had four and a half months to travel from Beijing to Singapore and take a flight home. As it turned out, two or three weeks into my trip, this is August and September of 2001, the airplanes hit the Pentagon and New York City. And I had actually lived about a mile from the Pentagon. So it, it really hit close to home. But at the same time, I was, you know, I was overseas. I, I didn't really experience 9-11 the way it it happened uh, you know, here. I, I was so far away. It was hard to know what was going on. And I was in China and they blocked the internet. So I didn't have a lot of good access to, to information. But what I did realize was that this was going to put the economy into uh, a recession. And I had also realized right at that time that I wasn't spending a lot of money. So I had this leftover money. I was like, wait a second, I'm spending $15, $20 a day and I have maybe $6,000 in my bank account or whatever it was at the time. I just decided at that point, like I can keep traveling. I, I loved it so much. So four and a half months turned into 14 months. 
I traveled to a total of 18 countries. I spent $10,000 wow. for that whole trip. And when I eventually got home, I then tacked on another two months of driving around the U.S. with a friend that I met traveling. So it was a really great experience. And uh, afterwards, I, w- I was broke and, and ready to start my life again. Craig, that's such an interesting calculation. It's only costing me 15 bucks a day. I've got $6,000 in my bank account. That's going to last me 400 plus days, right? Like what a yeah. cool way to look at it. It's, that's really, really It was really a very Yeah. It was an easy calculation. And, and I also had these airline points. You'll like this, Brad. I had 25,000 US Airways points in my back pocket that I earned through credit card spending. And when I got back to my parents' house in December of 2001, I called up US Airways and I cashed in my points and, and flew to Ecuador. So those points <laughs> actually allowed me to extend my trip without spending any more money. So Craig, let's place this. So obviously time matters to you even then, but place us here. So you're 27 years old, as I understand, and your dad retired that year in 2002 at 56. You had just gotten back from an 18 month trip around the world, but you're back living at home. That doesn't sound like the person who's going to retire at 55. Talk us through where you were then. Well, I was broke. I had a few jobs doing temp work, but this was 2002. The economy wasn't very strong. You know, the economy had fallen after the dot-com boom and bust and uh, 9-11 had hit. So things just weren't that strong. And I was, I was living in Pittsburgh, my hometown, and Pittsburgh was even less economically strong at the time. So it just, I, I didn't feel like I had a lot of options. So that's the subtext, right? You're living at home. We kind of have this non-traditional path that hasn't at this point had this fairy tale ending. You, the, you, the reality is people aren't returning your phone call when you're applying for a job. Your dad tells you that he no longer needs to work anymore. He's retiring. He has a very you know linear path that worked out wonderfully well, but you're not starting with that. Like if you were to take his path, it's 30 something years away to the end of that particular course. And who knows whether or not there will be a pension waiting for you like it was for him. That's certainly, you're certainly not going to be able to retire before him if you follow directly in his footsteps. What did you do? How did you how did you navigate this? Well, I put myself out there. My resume was all over the the major resume sites like Monster and Career Builder. And in November of that year, I got an email from a random guy who found this little mention on my resume. It was a specific software skill I had that was pretty hard to come by. You know, there wasn't a lot of jobs for it, but if someone needed a person who knew that software, they were hard to find. This person reached out to me in, in November, and not until about May did that job actually come through. It was a government contracting job. There's a lot of paperwork that needs to happen. So by May of that year, the, you know, the guy finally worked out a position for me, uh, and I ended up staying with that company for 14 years. I want to transition a little bit and talk about you know essentially your money story. So you know you get your first job, and for the first time in about a decade, I guess you now have a significant disposable income and you're looking into investing. And I know that dividend investing is a large part of your story. What attracted you to this particular method of investing? I was always interested in investing from a very young age. My dad had a few mutual funds and I would go into the newspaper and look up the mutual fund quotes and and sort of follow along. I mean, this is in my, I was eight or nine years old doing this. And I had a close relationship with my uncle. He ended up moving to California from Pittsburgh to take a job with uh, actually a company, a bigger company bought out his company. He was in the uh, what's called the stock transfer office. He was the stock transfer agent for the company Chevron. And for my 20th birthday, he gave me one share of Chevron stock. This was 1995. It wasn't easy to start investing in 1995. There were no apps. There were no online brokers. There were no apps to go and buy stock. It was, it was kind of hard to actually start investing. You know, if you went to Vanguard or, or Fidelity, you know, they didn't want a college kid investing 50 bucks a month in an ETF or a fund or whatever was available at the time. So this, this gift from my uncle was really the gift of investing. It wasn't just a share of stock, but it allowed me to start investing in the stock. It was, it was one share. It was through what's called the, the DRIP or the Dividend Reinvestment Plan. And it allowed me to mail a check, like a $50 check once a month to buy a little bit of a stock. And that stock paid a dividend. When he gave me the, the share, he said, if you put in a little bit of money every month and you do it consistently over time and 
you receive these dividends and reinvest them back into the stock, eventually you know, the stock price will rise and you'll have this income stream from the dividends. And that's what I did. That's how I started investing through these $50 increments. There weren't really any other options at the time for someone like me. So Craig, I love that. The gift of investing from your uncle. That's a really cool phrase. But you mentioned in there the DRIP program. Can you explain that to the audience? And is that something that is company by company? Is it through an investing firm? Like, Is that something that exists today? Talk us through that. There are two basic ways you can own a stock. The first is through your broker. When you own a stock through a brokerage, it's called owning it in street name. But there's a way to own the stock directly through the company. And that's when you actually get access to a stock certificate and you own it. It's called direct ownership. Most companies have a, a direct stock ownership program, especially dividend paying companies. So it's, it's like if, you, if you're an employee of a company and you own stock in that company, usually it's directly through the company and not through a brokerage. So these dividend reinvestment plans are also known as direct stock purchase plans. You own one stock and you invest directly with the company. Usually there's a third party that administers these programs, but most of the large companies still have them. They're a little outdated for today's investors because you can really own one, really only own one stock at a time uh, where it's much easier to just invest with an online broker. So let's talk about dividend stocks in particular. So back in episode 75, we had Brian Feraldi on. He was making the case for the unique advantages of the individual investor. And I guess kind of, you know, again, going back to definitions of terms, when we talk about index funds like VTSAX, we're talking about owning a very, very small piece of every publicly traded company in the United States, plus some additional. I mean, it's just, it's basically the publicly traded companies that are available. You get a small piece of all of them. When you buy an individual stock, you're purchasing a piece of one individual company. When you say dividend investing though, what is, what's the nuance there? Well, I'm going to start by saying I am also an indexer. I've been uh, investing in tax advantaged accounts uh, in mutual funds and index funds since I started my career back in 1998. So I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm on board with you guys. And I think that indexing is a better strategy for, for most people. Uh, but dividend, what I would call dividend growth investing is a whole other strategy where the investor buys individual stocks that typically pay a dividend and grow the dividend every year. These companies typically have a, a long history of paying dividends and increasing the dividends on an annual basis. So the idea is you want to put together a, a portfolio of several of these, what we call dividend growth stocks. And dividend growth investing is a strategy where individual investors buy shares of companies, individual companies that have a history of paying a dividend over long periods of time and also increasing that dividend on an annual basis. When you buy a stock like this, a dividend is simply the company sharing their profits with the shareholders. Ideally, you want to put together a portfolio of several of these companies that are known for paying the dividend and in increasing their dividends so that you start receiving a, an income stream of dividends that grows greater than the rate of inflation over time. So I'm trying to put myself in the position of a listener and maybe someone that really just started thinking about investing because maybe they listened to the show and up to this point, they're very happy and content just with trusting the process, buying you know, as they can afford it, as much of an index mm. as they can afford for as long as they can afford it. And now they're kind of feeling very comfortable about that and they're ready to learn that next bit. And now for the first time, they're hearing these additional terms like dividend being thrown out and they're trying to contrast that with, well, what, what is my index doing? How is it growing? And so, you know, I'm just, if we could even take just a half a second and explain what is the difference between a dividend and capital appreciation? Sure. Well, this capital appreciation is when the stock price increases. So if you buy a stock or ETF at $100 and it appreciates to $110, that's a capital appreciation. A dividend is where some of the profits are paid out to the investor. And this comes out of their cash holdings usually. And when a dividend is paid out, like so let's say, for example, a dollar dividend is paid out, then the stock price actually goes down by a dollar. But your brokerage account, the cash amount goes up by the amount of the dividend times the number of shares that you have. And ETFs do this as well. ETFs pay a dividend. Uh, but you know, you're getting a dividend from your VTSAX you know, there's 5,000 companies in that fund that'll pay you a dividend. With, with a, buying an individual stock, you're only getting that one dividend. 
Craig, you said something in there that's really important. And to be perfectly honest, I've, I've never been a huge fan of dividend investing, but I always want to learn more. And the reason why I've never been a big fan is, is because of almost precisely what you just said, which is they pay a dollar dividend, but the stock price goes down a dollar. Isn't that just like selling your shares, but being forced to do it? Well, when you receive a dividend, there is a taxable event. Uh, that's especially if it's in a you know an individual taxable account. Now you can avoid the taxes if if you have your money in say a Roth IRA, which is a really good vehicle for for dividend investing. But it's really just a transfer of cash. So if a company has a hundred million dollars on their balance sheet and they pay out twenty five million dollars in, in dividends, the, it's this is the valuation of the stock is going to go down by that amount. There is that taxable event, which some investors don't like, and certainly a lot of indexers don't like. So, Craig, I just want to want to understand and and, and want to make this clear for the audience. I've heard a lot of people in the dividend investing community who are extremely passionate about dividend investing, as if it's the holy grail, right? Like it's the answer to everything they've been looking for. And and I don't think that's your position. Certainly, from reading your blog and knowing that I think you said seventy five percent of your holdings are in index funds. But, but maybe you can give us a perspective of why people are so passionate about this when at its essence, it doesn't seem that revolutionary. So I'd love to hear it. Well, I, I can speak to why I invest in dividends. I mean, everyone has their own reasons. But the re- you know, I, I started a long time investing in dividend stocks. And I, I tried investing in growth stocks and I tried to find the next big Amazon and I was never very good at it. But one, one thing that people find a lot of comfort in with dividend investing is that it's very predictable. And when markets are fluctuating and markets go up and down every day, dividends are very stable. Companies pay these dividends every quarter, year after year after year. And you can measure exactly how much money you're going to receive from these companies. I think a lot of people find comfort in that. It's like, well, here, you know, here's my investment. Here's my, it's like putting your money in cash, right? If you, have, you put your money in cash and the bank pays you interest, you, you know that's coming. And with dividends, it's the same way. Have you seen the interest rate at my bank? (laughs) (laughs) So dividend growth investing brings some stability to the markets, which are otherwise very unstable. So is that like a infallible truth that dividends will always be there and they will always go up? Well, certainly not. But if you choose companies that have been paying dividends for a very long time and that have a long history of paying and growing their dividends, and you have a management that is dedicated to paying that dividend to shareholders, it's relatively stable and predictable that the dividends will continue to be paid. One of the most important parts of dividend investing is identifying these companies that can pay their dividend and then monitoring them to make sure that they're not going to cut their dividend in the future. Craig, I'm curious, when I hear something like that, it reminds me of like setting up perverse incentives. When you set up potentially perverse incentives for for companies and upper level executives to we have to pay this dividend, like are there instances where that gets companies into trouble? Like I, I feel like I recollect like there being issues with GE recently. I don't know companies having to borrow money to pay this dividend just because everyone expects it. Have you ever invested in a stock like that? Oh, certainly, yeah. Companies sometimes they have to to cut their dividend. You want to find companies that are growing their earnings and then growing their dividends parallel to those earnings. But sometimes companies hit a rough spot and they can't pay their dividend anymore. I owned Bank of America in 2008. They had to cut their dividend by a whole lot. I never owned GE, but GE cut their dividend recently. One of the main parts of dividend growth investing is identifying companies that cannot pay their dividend and avoiding those and finding the companies that can pay their dividend and have done it for a long time and and stick with those. A lot of these companies are are really boring. You know, we're not looking for the next Tesla or the next Amazon. You know, these are diversified industrial companies. They're utility companies. You know, a utility company has very stable cash flow. It's a very predictable business. If they've been paying, I think Con Edison has been paying a dividend for for decades. The business model doesn't really change that much. So these are these are companies with for the most part, you know, very stable businesses that you can predict the earnings and, and therefore predict the dividends. You see, I've seen this. I've seen this on different blogs. It doesn't need to outperform the index as long as it provides a solid dividend. That's all I care about is the yield. How should someone that is trying to build a portfolio, what is a balanced approach to a statement like that? 
Yeah, you've touched on on an important point about dividend growth investing. There is evidence that you do your research and you follow the strategy very diligently over many years that you can beat the market. My personal experience, I am not trying to beat the market. I am concerned about building this income stream. I, I originally really started to invest this way so that I could build an income stream to cover my expenses from between the time I retired until age 59 and a half when my retirement accounts are available. So a lot of us are, are really not concerned about beating the market. And I know that sounds strange to growth investors or index investors. We're more concerned about this income stream that comes from the dividends than we are about beating the market. It's hard to beat the market no matter what strategy you're going to deploy. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to build a very consistent and predictable income stream that supplements my regular income. Craig, this again is where I just fall down in in understanding. (laughs) So bear with me here. This income stream, I've never been able to understand this with dividend investing. So I personally don't believe it's income. You have a share that's worth $100. The company pays a 1% dividend. You then get a dollar in cash, but the value of the share went down a dollar. So you now have $99 worth of a share you have a dollar in cash. So your net worth is exactly the same. And actually it's probably less because you actually created a taxable event. So you actually probably have $99 and and some change, but you have this dollar in cash. So to me, it's not, it's not income. It's just, it's akin to selling shares. Am I, am I misunderstanding something fundamentally? Brad, I I understand where you're coming from. You know, you're certainly keeping all of your shares, but you're simply receiving part of the earnings into your account. You're, you're getting a cash payout based on the earnings. You have to remember, you know, dividends have been around since really the beginning of, of the stock market. So this is a, you know, it's a very old concept. If you're a part owner of the company, you're, you have an entitlement to receive part of the profits. This is very interesting for me just because this is, frankly, it's a new conversation. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at this. Like Brad, we're both just trying to understand this because some people are so passionate about it. And Craig, I think you have a really good balance on it. I guess kind of the question, you know, the the question I felt like Brad was asking was just simply, why, why does it matter whether or not part of your returns is coming as a dividend? Why be so focused on that when it really, it comes down to the fact that you don't need this money right now. 10, 15, 20 years from now, really what you care about is your total return. And this kind of boxes you into taking, forcing, you know, a taxable event in the short term when really all you're going to care about is 10 or 15 years from now, what is your total return? I think that in a nutshell is, is where I guess I would come from as well. And and I'm curious, like for you, is the dividend an indicator of a good company? Because, you know, from the perspective of Brian Feraldi, who made a pretty impressive case for investing in good companies, is this just more focus on that? Hey, companies that produce regular dividends over time, it's a good indicator that I should start looking at these first. Is that what it is to you? Or is there something on top of that that we're missing? Well, yeah, you asked a few questions there. Yes, I did. We might, <laughs> we might need to back up. We might, we need to, so not all dividend investors are concerned about total return 10 to 15 years from now. As I said, it's dividend stocks are a vehicle to create an income stream. So a lot of us don't really care about what the total return is. What we care about is how much money is coming into my, my account every quarter or every month or every year. We want to take that money and invest it into to more dividend growth stocks so that we're creating this compounding effect but you and would yeah. get compounding without dividend investing, right? You're just you're just forcing the taxable event when you don't really have to. So this is a popular strategy for people that that want current income, particularly for retirees. One of the advantages of, of a dividend of investing in a dividend stock is that you are paid this you know, a share of the profits. This is a taxable event if you're in a taxable account, and there are ways to avoid that with with tax advantage accounts. But there, there is some comfort in receiving a return today on your investment. You know, you, you could buy a company and, and hold it for 50 years and, and not receive a dividend that whole time and rely entirely on capital gains. But you know, dividend investing allows you to actually get some current income from your investment today that you could live off of if you want, or you can reinvest it. You know, a lot of older people like dividend stocks because it does give you that current income and you can live off of that if if that's what you choose to do. And yes, I understand there, you know, there is this, this taxable event 
but the tax treatment is favorable. Most dividends are qualified dividends. Qualified dividends are taxed the same as long-term capital gains, as long as you hold on to it for, for 60 days. So depending on your tax bracket, uh, you're only really going to be taxed 15% on this income. And there's actually a kind of a hack with dividend investing is if you're single and, and you your total income is, I think it's around $39,000 right now, you don't pay any tax on that dividend income. You know, for a married couple, I think the number uh, for 2019 is 78,000. So you could actually make seven. You, if you're married, you can make $78,000 from dividend payments and not pay a penny on taxes. Now that is pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> well, why why don't why don't all stocks pay dividends? You know, like what is the, what is the interplay here between a a stock that chooses to pay out this dividend versus one that just keeps it? If paying out dividends is a sign of good faith to the shareholder, growth stocks. If you're a growth stock investor. A, a company in a, in a growth phase, you, you don't really want them to be investing to to be paying out a dividend, because you really want the company to be investing that money back into the company for growth. Same thing goes for a, a share share buyback program. You know, they say that if you know, a company buys back their shares, that they have nothing else to spend the money on. Dividend growth companies are slightly different in that they're not really in a growth phase. These are mature companies. These are companies that you know, have boring businesses. For example, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a company called Dover Corporation, and this is a, a classic dividend growth stock. It's been paying a dividend to its shareholders for 63 years, somewhere around there. It's a diversified company, meaning they have a lot of different businesses uh, in, in different spaces. Yeah, but one of their businesses is grocery store refrigeration. They make the refrigerators and freezers that go into your local grocery store. You know, this is a pretty boring business that you wouldn't really think of as even being a business, but it has what's called a, a wide moat. There are no Stanford grads that aspire to disrupt the grocery store refrigeration market, right? This is a, a business that's very stable. It, it grows in a very predict- predictable manner, and th- this is not something that's going away. Growth stocks can be disrupted. The technology stocks come and go. A lot of them can come and go and certain technologies uh, you know, become outdated. But we like to find these kinds of companies that have these businesses that really don't go out of style. My question was, you know, why, why don't all stocks pay out dividends? But kind of the other half of that, and it's kind of obvious for someone that's exploring this more as well. Okay. So if dividend investing is really just a piece or, you know, kind of a, a sector of stock investing as a whole, and we decide that dividend investing is this amazing way to evaluate good stocks, why wouldn't I just want to find the company that's paying the biggest dividend out there? Let's say there's a company that's paying three times the market rate for dividends. You know, is that a sign that it's the best company? Well, when it comes to the, the amount of the dividend being paid, there's a, a lot of things to consider. Some companies pay a 20% dividend. That's actually a sign of a bad company or a company that's in trouble when the dividend yield spikes like that. The growth of any stock is really based on earnings. So earnings is very important. So you want to look at companies that are growing their earnings quickly, more so than the yield on the stock. Uh, there's also something called the, the dividend growth rate, and that's the rate at which the dividend is increased every year. So there are some companies that maybe have a, a high yield, such as AT&T. AT&T yields above 6% right now, but it's not growing very fast. It's a heavy cash flow business. It has a lot of us who have our cell phones through AT&T and we pay them a monthly amount. You know, it's a very strong cash flow business. The yield is high, but the, the growth is very low. So the dividend, I think it only grows at maybe 2 or 3% a year. Whereas you take a company like Visa is growing a lot faster. It's growing its earnings faster. It only pays a 1% yield, but it, it increases that dividend by double digits every year. So there's really a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways to look at these companies. You don't want to just buy all high dividend yielding stocks. You want to find a sort of balance of high dividend yielding stocks, middle dividend yield stocks, and like sort of low dividend yield stocks that have a very fast growth rate. Anytime you get above like six, seven, eight percent some REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, pay more than 8%. But if you're looking at a company like a GE or if some blue chip stock starts to, the yield starts to get high, it's a sign that the stock price has gone down a lot and that Wall Street investors are, are not that confident that it's going to be able to, to pay the dividend. 
So that like a high yield is just, is definitely not a, a good sign of a strong dividend growth stock. You really want to look at the the payout ratio, which is the percentage of the earnings that's paid to the shareholders, and then this dividend growth rate, which should align closely to its earnings growth rate. So Craig, before you said that you're looking for companies that are growing their earnings quickly rather than the yield. So that speaks more to you're looking for top-notch companies. At its essence, this is similar to what Brian Feraldi said on his episode where he's talking about investing in individual stocks. And, and I'm curious how you personally go about investigating and researching companies that you ultimately purchase. Well, you, you want to balance different types of dividend growth stocks. You want some that are low yields, like 1% or 2% that have a high dividend growth rate. And then you want also to have higher dividend payments, like an AT&T or uh, a company like IBM right now is, has a fairly high dividend, but a slower growth rate. So you want, you want to have a portfolio of a variety of these kinds of dividend stocks in different sectors of the market, uh, different dividend yields, and uh, different, you know, different growth rates. So you're not, you're not going to find like a Tesla, you know, a company that's growing really fast, it's going to pay a dividend. But you can find certainly diff- companies at different stages of their growth that, that pay a dividend. And there's a lot of ways to identify these kinds of companies. The first place I recommend people going is, is what's called the dividend aristocrats list. The dividend aristocrats are companies that are in the S&P 500 that have a 25-year record of both paying a dividend and growing their dividend. There's about 56 companies in the S&P 500 qualify for that. Uh, that's just the S&P 500. You know, of course, there's a whole universe of stocks uh, there's a, another uh, list of stocks called the uh, the Dividend Champions list. It's actually called the Dividend CCC list. It uh, stands for Dividend Champions, Contenders, and Challengers. And it's actually a really cool free resource. If you go to dripinvesting.org, that was D-R-I-P investing.org, they have uh, this free list called the the Dividend CCC list. You can download a spreadsheet. It's got a ton of free information where you can where they highlight these companies that fit this dividend growth mold. And there's a ton of data there. So you can find all the metrics you need to evaluate your stocks. So Craig, 56 companies in that dividend aristocrats group. That's interesting to me. So you're saying those are components of the S&P 500. So these are enormous companies. Have you ever looked at their total growth, capital appreciation plus dividends versus I guess the total S&P 500 or the total stock market index. I think in my own mind, if I knew that that those companies were going to get me a better return over the long term, okay, maybe there's something here and and I should look into it more. Are there studies of that? And and I know I'm kind of sandbagging you with a random question here, but but have you ever heard of that or or looked into it personally? Sure, yeah. If you Google the dividend risk crest list versus the S&P 500, you will find charts that do show over time that the dividend aristocrats have outperformed the S&P 500. Now, I want to caution you there because anybody writing something on the internet can find a data set sort of match their their narrative, right? And that, that's true with with any investing numbers. You can always find like a time frame that will uh, you know kind of fit your narrative. But there is evidence that the dividend aristocrats have outperformed the market if you go and look for that. And there's actually an ETF that you can buy. A few ETFs that are based on the dividend aristocrats list or or stocks of this nature that are that are dividend growth stocks. So, you know, practically speaking, you have an individual that's listening to this and say, all right, sounds great. How do I pick a company? It looks like it has a good dividend, maybe it even has a really high dividend. You personally, Craig, how do you go about selecting a company? Well, if you're just getting started, I would begin with buying a company that you like. You know, if you go to Starbucks, then buy Starbucks stock. That's just it's one way to get started with investing in individual companies. You really want to start with companies you understand really well. You know, you don't want to go buying some complicated bank or real estate company. You don't understand their business model. So start slowly with a company that you understand. I don't buy companies that I, I don't like. You know, I don't shop at certain stores or I don't like the experience at certain stores. And I won't buy that that stock. You know, one of the disadvantages of buying an index fund is that you own all the companies. So if you have some 
uh, you know, if, if you morally don't like certain types of companies for you know vice stocks or whatever kind of company you may not like, you do own part of those companies in VTSAX or SPY or you know whatever ETF or, or fund that you use. So it is a way to be parallel with your values by selecting individual stocks if, if that's important to you. Now, for example, I don't I don't like shopping at Walmart. I don't own Walmart stock. I prefer going to Target and I do own Target stock. You want to be careful not to let that kind of bias influence your purchase decisions. I really but, love Sears. I love Sears. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you love Sears, you, you know, and you bought the stock 10 years ago, that, that wasn't a good strategy for you. For our audience, people listening to this, who should spend more time looking into dividend investing? Who is this for? Dividend investing takes a lot of time and research to be able to do it correctly. So this is not a strategy that you want to kind of do willy-nilly. Uh, it, it takes a pretty big commitment of time to research these companies and to to follow your portfolio. A lot of the research with these companies is done on the like before you make the purchase. And then once you make a purchase, you have to follow that company. So if, if you don't have a lot of time to do stock research, or if you just don't enjoy stock research or paying attention to stocks or the market, it's probably not a strategy that you want to follow. Some typical investor traits of dividend growth investors are that they really enjoy investing. They, they enjoy looking at these companies and, and, and digging in because it, it does take a lot of time to be able to choose these companies. And how about you? Where do you fit into this picture? I mean, you know, I, I remember you saying at the beginning of this episode that you're an indexer as well. So you're not all in on this hand. How do you balance dividend investing with, is it like a core and satellite approach? What is it that you do personally? Well, ever since I started working, I've contributed to my 401k that was available to me or IRAs every year. So I'm an optimizer. I max out my 401k. I max out uh, my wife's spousal IRA. We put money into our Roth IRA. We invest in Virginia 529. I live in Virginia. So that 529 college savings. So this kind of investing is really after all of that stuff. You know, once you max out everything you can to optimize, like you guys talk about every week, then you decide, okay, I have this money left over after maxing out my accounts. I have some money left over. You know, what, what can you do with that money? You can spend it. You can put it into cash savings. You can invest in real estate. You have, you have lots of options with your money. And, you know, the option that I choose for a lot of my after-tax money once I've maxed everything else out, is I put it toward these dividend growth stocks in a taxable account, and that gives me a, uh, it was a, a built into this income stream based on on these investments. Now, right now, I receive dividend investors use something called their forward dividend income. That's an estimate of how much money you expect to receive from your dividends alone in the coming twelve months. So, right now, my my number is around seven thousand dollars. So, I receive about. If I were to stop working today and just live off my dividends, I would receive about $7,000 in dividends before taxes kick in. I deploy a strategy where I'm trying to build multiple streams of income. I have my salary income. I have a real estate property. I invest in real estate crowdfunding. I do some peer-to-peer lending. And then I have really the core is, is my dividend growth portfolio. And every year, it just it grows a little bit more and a little bit more. And I reinvest the earnings into that dividend growth portfolio. And right now that pays me about $7,000 per year. That's just, that's work I don't do. I don't do any work to receive that money. It, it just comes into my account and it grows higher than the rate of inflation because the dividend companies all typically increase their dividends every year, usually above the rate of inflation. So that's, that's been my strategy that's, that's worked for me. And I, I track this on, on my website, what I call my forward 12 month investment income, which is my, my rental property real estate crowdfunding, dividends, and even the interest I receive on my cash. And I built that amount of money to be about $10,000. So when I lost my job in 2017, I was still being paid by those income streams. And ideally, I want to be able to build those income streams up until I retire so that I have a, a solid stream of income that's paid to me when I'm done working. But it's also I'm also not relying upon the safe withdrawals. You know, I'll have all that money, you know, tax advantage money. I still have all that on my retirement accounts, but this money is money I earn outside of my tax advantage accounts. And I don't need to worry about safe withdrawal rates or anything like that. It's just, it's money that I, I receive and my principal doesn't go down. 
You mentioned safe withdrawal rate, which is interesting because it's exactly what I wanted to talk about. And part of this is simplicity, right? You don't need to worry about sequence of return risk or safe withdrawal rate because you have this fixed income that's coming in. And honestly, that's my question. Is that really true? Do you not have to worry about sequence of return risk? Do you not have to worry about the market going down just by virtue of having dividend stocks? Well, when the market goes down, the dividend stocks go down too, but the dividend itself usually stays about the same. I mean, some some companies will will go out of business, you know, if, when there's a, a big stock market crash. But for the most part, if you have a diversified portfolio, the dividends will continue to be paid and continue to go up. And I, I think that's my point. So if the actual stock price, let's say the stock price was at $100, the market crashes, the stock goes down 20, 30, 40%, but they're still being forced to pay out that dividend. Doesn't that adversely affect the health of that stock? For some companies, they can't afford to do it. Those are the companies that that cut the dividend. There are times when stock prices go down. A good example was uh, the oil stocks. You know, when when the oil prices go down, it becomes harder for these oil companies to make a profit, and they're still paying out their dividends. And yes, some some companies will borrow money to pay their dividends, and part of that is really a demand from the shareholders. You know, if you've been paying a, a dividend for thirty years. Your shareholders own that stock to because of that. A lot of them do, especially retirees. So there is an expectation that the company will continue to pay their dividend. Management needs to determine, first of all, they, they need to have a strong balance sheet so that you know, in case the stock market does go down, they are able to, to weather the storm. But management needs to make a decision sometimes. Like, yeah, they might need to cut the dividend in order to keep the company solvent, or you know, they might find a better use of the money to invest back in the company. Sometimes paying a dividend does hinder growth. Ultimately, what I look at is, you know, how did you do in relationship to what the market has done, right? Have you, have you kept up with the market? If you're using a dividend strategy, picking good companies that pay out a good dividend, and then if you look back historically and you've beaten the market, then it seems like this is awesome. But conversely, if you've got a, you know, a dividend and and maybe you kind of keep up with the market or you fall behind, you know, regardless of whether or not you had the option to pull that dividend out and then you reinvested it or whether or not you kept it, it's kind of like an illusion with some friction. So I, I really struggle with that. You know, for you, it sounds like you're saying it's not really important that you beat the market or keep up with the market even. Is that, is that accurate? Well, there, there's a spectrum, you know, certain dividend growth investors are very, dedicated to using the strategy to beat the market. I am not one of those people. I'm more concerned about the companies that I own and their ability to pay me the dividend and grow me the dividend over time. Now, I measure this forward 12-month income that I receive from my dividends, and I do look at my total market returns for this particular portfolio. Again, I have all my tax advantage index funds and and some mutual funds in different accounts, but in my taxable account, I do look to see that my performance against the S&P 500 every year. There are years where I get close to beating it or I I do beat it by a little bit, and there are years that I fall behind a little bit. But my main concern is building this income stream that I can use to do with it whatever I want. I can reinvest it. Ideally, when I'm retired, I will use that money to live off of. And I don't have to worry about, well, with this portion of my money, I'm not concerned about selling the stocks. When I own a, a dividend growth stock, my investment horizon is forever. You know, Warren Buffett says that my favorite investment horizon horizon is forever. I don't want to have to sell these stocks. I want to own my Chevron stock when I'm 80 years old. And by that point, it's going to be paying me this, this dividend. This should be a lot higher, assuming it's, in, it's still in business. But you know, I'm not looking to sell these stocks. I want to hold on to them so that I have this reliable income stream in retirement. People who don't understand the, the dividend growth investing strategy, which I'm trying to do my best to, to explain here, it's hard to grasp this concept of not caring as much about total returns. It really is about creating an income stream that is stable, that grows greater than the rate of inflation, and is money that you will earn from really not doing any work. It, it is passive income. There's a little bit of work you need to do to make, make sure your, your investment portfolio is in, is in good shape and none of the companies are going out of business. 
but it's more for me, especially. I know there are other people who are trying to beat the market, but for me, I'm more concerned about this income stream and the dividends that I receive every quarter and every every year. So you've been inspired by this concept of retiring before dad, right? It's how we started this this conversation. Where are you at now? Are you are you still on pace? Yeah, I I am on pace. You know, I, I expect that I'll hit financial independence sometime probably in the next five to six years. But I, I'm not looking to leave work or stop what I'm doing immediately when I hit when I hit five. No, that's actually interesting because I know you've actually talked about reaching financial independence before early retirement. That's right. Yeah. So my early retirement, I, I, I consider them different. You know, financial independence is where how you guys define it. You know, you have enough money to live the life that you want and cover your expenses. Uh, when I retire, I'm I'm not looking to retire and keep working or retire and have a side business or whatever. I, I want to retire completely. And that goal is still on pace to happen when I reach 55. Now there's a lot of challenges still, you know, we've committed to paying for our children's college education. My son is going to start his freshman year, the year I plan to retire. So that's a, a pretty big number I'm expecting to have to deal with. Uh, you know, there's certainly healthcare issues and I do believe I'm on pace to hit that fine number and then to retire at some point after that, fully retire before my dad. Well done, sir. Well done. All right. Uh, for our audience, people that have listened to this, that have loved your story and want to know more about the content that you've been writing, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Retirebeforedad.com is the best place to connect. And you can find me on Twitter and, and Facebook, uh, but my website is the easiest place to, to reach me. Well, Craig, we are so excited that you came on the show and we're willing to kind of unpack this for us and share with us your why of dividend investing and just appreciate you taking all of our questions and really giving us your honest feedback on that. Now, on most shows, that would be the end of the episode, but on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Sure, let's do it. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Craig, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. Well, I'm going to mention uh, retireby40.org, Joe Udo is uh, a blogger who's been doing this uh, for quite a long time. He's a dividend investor. He has real estate. Uh, you know, he makes money from his blog. He's stay-at-home dad. Uh, very genuine blogger. Shares a lot of his personal story. And he's also a very thoughtful commenter when, when he comes to my site. And he was one of the blogs that really inspired me to, to start my blog in 2013. I also want to mention a couple dividend blogs that uh, have been around a while and, and really uh, are emblematic of the strategy. Uh, these guys actually have built a dividend income stream that exceeds their expenses. So they're financially independent from uh, dividend stocks alone. So this is definitely possible. Uh, the first one is called Dividend Growth Investor. This guy's anonymous, but he's been blogging for more than 10 years. Uh, he's reached his, what he calls the dividend crossover point, the point where his dividend income exceeds his expenses. Uh, is financially independent that way. Uh, and then there's another uh, blogger that goes by Mr. Free at 33. This is Jason Fever. He's formerly known as Dividend Mantra. Dividend Mantra was a huge blog in the dividend space and he really inspired a, a lot of dividend growth investors and dividend bloggers. He sold that site, essentially has bought enough dividend stocks to pay for his lifestyle. I think he earned something like 15,000 from dividend stocks and he lives in Thailand off those dividends and he still works, but his dividend income supports his lifestyle. So those are two blogs. If you want to learn more about dividend investing, there's a lot to learn from those two. Awesome. We'll definitely link those up in the show notes. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now this can be one that you wrote or someone else's. I'm going to go with one that I wrote. It's called Life Without the Constraints of Time and Money. So this blog post goes into a lot of my personal story from the time when I was traveling through going back to work. And it spent some time talking about my biggest financial mistake, which I guess I'll get into later in the hot seat here. But I made this really poor choice with my money 
that really crippled my lifestyle. And it took me a while to work my way out of it. But you know, life without the constraints of time and money, that, that was the feeling I had when I was traveling. You know, I had all the money I needed uh, and I had all this time where I could travel the world and, and really do what I wanted on any given day. I didn't have any kids or any bills to pay. That's really the kind of retirement. That's really why I'm pursuing financial independence. That's the kind of retirement that I would like. I, I want a retirement without the constraints of, of time and money, where you have enough money to do exactly what you want to do every day. I also like to work music into some of my articles. So I, I have these obscure music references, and I try to work different titles and things into my, my section headers. And that's another reason why I, I really like this article. And it's um, a really good example of my blog and the things that I write about. Nice. Yeah, Craig, that sounds like a life well-lived, free of time and money constraints. I love that. Let's go to question number three, your favorite life hack. All right. Well, this one is travel-related. Some of us are fortunate enough at times in our life where we can take a, a period of time and, and go travel. When I did this, I was planning a, a four-and-a-half-month trip, and it ended up turning into a 14-month trip. But so many times I've seen friends and people I know who have had this opportunity of a lifetime. We're like, okay, I'm between jobs, or I, I finished school, and I'm ready to go travel the world. And then they go, they buy a ticket, and they only give themselves three or four weeks. So my life hack is that when you have that opportunity to travel, you're going to need more time and less money than you think. So always give yourself more time. Buy a one-way ticket or you know, travel hack your way to get a one-way ticket. And really, if you don't have a lot of money, it doesn't matter. I mean, you, you can find ways around the world to live on a very low amount of, of money. So that, that's my hack, uh, my life hack for you today. Awesome. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. I alluded to this one before. Once I got this job in Washington, D.C., I moved to the city and I, I lived in this a group home with, with a couple guys and I think I paid like $750 a month. And it was a really good experience. I, I met a lot of people, but it, at some point, I, I felt like I really needed to buy my own place. Now, this was 2006, and I'd been really patient, and I saw that there was this real estate bubble, and it just popped. You know, So prices were, were cratering. I was like, this is perfect. You know, I, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to go buy a place right now that the bubble has popped. So I went out, and I found this one-bedroom condo. It was really cool. It was you know, The price had come way down, and I bought it. Of course, that was 2006. Uh, it was after the bubble popped, but before you know, the real crisis hit, you know, 2007, 2008, the banking crisis. And it was really just a terrible time to purchase the property. But that wasn't my big mistake. When I bought this property, I went from having a $750 rent payment to a $2,300 mortgage and tax payment. Oh, Yeah, it was a huge mistake to go from that small, very livable amount to this huge mortgage payment. Part of the reason why I bought it was I just got this $22,000 raise. And I thought, wow, this is great. Now that I got this big raise, I can go buy my own place. But you know, within a day or two of living there, I realized, like, you know, what was I thinking? Uh, I had this, you know, this great life in a cool house with a very low payment, and I just crippled my lifestyle with this, this giant payment. And this is what I get into with that article that I mentioned before, that really put a damper on my, on my life and my ability to save and, and pursue financial independence by giving myself that, that giant payment. So it took a few years to pay off the second loan. And I really, really hustled to sort of work my way out of that terrible position I put myself in. And I paid off some debt, then I you know, refinanced a couple of times. So I finally worked my way out of it. Eventually, I met my wife, she moved in, and we were able to save for a house in the suburbs. But we still have the condo, and it's become my rental property. It's actually become this blessing because now it does provide us some income. I also say if I hadn't bought that condo, I would never have met my wife because just the circumstances under which I met her, I would never have been there if, if it weren't for that condo. Sounds like a pretty good life decision all in all then, right? Sure. <laughs> it's amazing but, how that works. Yeah, but that, I mean, that payment was a killer. I know you guys talk about that, you know, the, the big four or whatever it is, you know, car payment, housing payment. And I just wasn't really aware that, that it was going to be such a crippling event when I did that. So it was certainly my biggest financial mistake. Yeah, it's interesting, right? How it seems like the American dream to own your own home, but you have to look at total cost of ownership. And certainly even just 
month to month payments, right? Like what's flowing out to go from in the 700s to over 2200. That's got to be tough to deal with. But yeah, I mean, certainly you made the best of it in the end and, and it all worked out well. So, all right, Craig, let's move on. Question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. When you have kids, and I, I've got three kids, when you start having kids, you realize how much free time you had before you had kids. Looking back at my single days, and I just I think about how I spent my time and how I spend my time now. There was just so much free time to do whatever I wanted. If I could speak to myself back when I was 30, 31, even after I bought that condo, I think it would have been really wise to start side hustling and to pursue more entrepreneurial ideas at the time. I had a social life and I watched a lot of TV and was pretty lazy overall, but I think I was afraid to fail. I thought about different business ideas, but I never really followed through on them. And really, I, I had nothing to lose. I had a ton of time to do it. It wouldn't have impacted my social life at all. Uh, th- that's the advice I would, I would give anybody who's single, maybe thinking about having kids someday. You're never going to have that much time again once you have kids. So start hustling. Start hustling. All right. Well, we do got a bonus question for you. What purchase have you made over the past 12 months that's brought the most value to your life? And you cannot say a dividend stock. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, a foam roller. I've got one of those foam rollers that you see at the gym. I, I bought one on Amazon. I think it cost me like 28 bucks or something like that. When I'm, you know, I'm hunched over at a computer all day at work and I come home and I write, I write on my blog, I'm hunched over a lot. I take that thing and I put it on the floor and I run my back along it and my entire back cracks. It's just over and over again when I use that foam roller. So it, it feels great. I also use it for my hips. I, I'm a swimmer. And if I swim too much and I don't stretch enough, I get some back pain in my lower back. So I, I went to a physical therapist. They, they kind of explained how to get rid of it. But that, that foam roller was only 28 bucks. And I just, I love having it at home. Yeah, that's really cool. I have a foam roller downstairs. I have a foam roller up in my bedroom. I have lacrosse balls <laughs> spread throughout the house that I use for a similar effect. And yeah, I, I'm right there with you, man. I love that. Craig, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Thanks, guys. Had a great time. Brad, I absolutely love that Craig was willing to come on the show and share his story. He's got an awesome story. And I want to say for the audience, life is rarely binary. You know, like regardless of whether your takeaway on this was, wow, I love dividends and I absolutely want to do dividends because I love the simplicity or you're like, wow, I won't touch that because total returns really are the only thing that matter. Either of those perspectives is fair. Life is probably somewhere in the, in the middle with, in most cases. But I think probably what I struggle with really is that almost that somewhat disconnect between if you're taking the dividends and just reinvest them, reinvesting it, why is it a nice thing that you have the income? Cause you're not using it. In which case really the only thing that matters is the total return. Now that's slightly different for the person that is actually drawing down. Then I can understand wanting to have consistent returns, you know, year over year. That's a slightly different frame, but I still have a little bit of trouble balancing that out. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, to me, it's all about total net worth. It's not about having a particular investment strategy. It's just what is going to get me the highest net worth at the end of the day. And then when I need to draw down, I can do it in the way that most people in the FI community do, which is selling shares, right? Which in essence is what's happening when you're getting a dividend. So it's just a different way of calling it in essence. But my bias would clearly be towards the total net worth. But again, really appreciate Craig coming on. He's got a fascinating life story. It's it's an interesting investment strategy. And yeah, I, I suspect, Jonathan, you and I are going to have a fun time on the Friday roundup just kind of going through this strategy more in depth. Well, you know what I was actually hoping to do because Craig made a very interesting point. And I think it's at least valid to continue the conversation about the simplicity when it comes to safe withdrawal rates and sequence of return risk. Now, whenever I say or even think about safe withdrawal rates and sequence of return risk, I immediately think of the 30 plus part series that our good friend Big Earn over at Early Retirement Now is continuing to write. And just within the last month or so, he did another article on the yield shield, which was actually looking at whether or not dividends, dividend stocks, what role they could have in shielding you from sequence of return risk. I thought that me and you could invite him on the show this Friday to talk about it a little bit further. Yeah, that sounds like a very value added proposition. So yeah, we'll definitely get bigger and on. Well, if he says yes, you know where to find us. Same bat time, same bat station. 
<laughs> All right, my friends, if you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just let the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to choosefi.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to choosefi.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cap. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.